Well, good morning, good morning. We're so glad to be together again, even though virtually. We know spiritually we're connected as we get together in our fellowship around the Word, around prayer, with our families. How much more intimate can it be than that? And of course, the Lord's presence with us, which He said He'll never leave us or forsake us. God's everywhere present, and so we're so thankful for His love for us, His grace to us. We're also very thankful for the Word of God, and I'm saying, way to go, Zayden. You nailed it, Jude 1 and 2, and I'm hoping that your example for us will continue to spur us on to continue in memorizing the book of Jude, and we know that we're, we're taking this year to do just that. So uh, as you're continuing to press on with that, I'm going to tell you again, keep pressing on with that because that's what it takes. So hiding God's word in our hearts. Thy word have I hid in my heart, the Psalms says, that I might not sin against you. Powerful stuff. We love the word of God. We know that the word of God is living and powerful. And so we get into the word on Sunday. We memorize the word. I love prayer meetings where the word comes up and somebody has something from the word because every time we open the word of God, we read it, we hear it, we say it. That's God's voice. God is speaking to us. So may you be encouraged in that yourselves. This morning we're in the final uh, study on family, looking at the, at the life of Isaac. And so we're in Genesis 27. And what I'm going to do this morning to begin, I'm going to read actually the last few verses of the chapter as we talk about this whole idea of family messiology. And notice that I capitalized M-E-S. <laughs> so we'll talk about that in a moment. But Genesis chapter 27, beginning in verse 41. I hope you have your Bibles with you. You'll open those up now and read along with me. Genesis chapter 27 and verse 41. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? And Rebekah said to Isaac, her husband, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like these who are of the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Let's pray. So Lord, again, we are thankful for who you are. We're thankful for your word this morning. I prepared, Lord, things. I pray you take and bless them, break them for us. We're hungry. We want to hear, Lord, your word to our hearts. We want to take heed to your word. We want to hide your word, all the things that we just shared a little bit about. Lord, please, the things that you've given to me here as I share them, feed us. We are hungry. We want to know you. We want to walk by faith, not by sight. We want to put our trust in you and so much more as we're going through these these difficult days right now, uncertainties and fears. So Lord, please settle our hearts once again that you are God and your word is true and you, Lord, are working all things together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so Lord, also I want to include in my prayers this morning, we include anyone who's listening who doesn't know you, that they would come to know you even this morning as the word is going out, your word 
is that which saves our lives, the gospel. So blessed now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've entitled this Messiology, and the first, to- first time that I heard that word Messiology was during one of George Verwer's visits to Calvary Chapel South. His wife, of, he's been married for 60 years to Drina. George Verwer founded Operation Mobilization in 1957. He has seen more than most of us will ever see. He has been to every nook and cranny of the planet. And so in his book that he wrote in 2015 by that title, Messiology, and if you look at it, it's Messiology, which makes a lot of sense. The forward of that, Greg Livingston said this, quote, George Verwer has nearly seen it all. Everything that can and does go wrong among Christians. Yet Verwer has for over 50 years been a grace-oriented reconciler, a friend of sinners, and a lighthouse of practical wisdom. And I've spent time with him. He's amazing. He is just that. So the, he said this, I have made mistakes in my life and ministry, and I know that many others have as well. I hope, he writes, by sharing some of my own pitfalls, others may learn by observation to avoid serious damage to themselves and to the body of Christ, unquote, George Verwer. Well, what I want to share this morning is not because I've read the book. I haven't. It's not even really because I, I remember some of the things that George said, though I've spent time with him, and he certainly has encouraged me many times. But really, there's only this one word just stuck when I heard it. Messiology. It just sums up. It says it all. It's kind of like a book that I once saw. It says a, it says a a long obedience in the same direction. Now, I read that title, and I thought, I don't even need to read the book because that says it all. Now, I'm not sure that Eugene Peterson would be happy about that, but he's gone to be with the Lord now, so he probably doesn't care. But messiology, I want to talk to you about that. In this little book that he wrote and what he, how he operates by grace, I want to expand on this idea of messiology, family messiology, by first of all, reading this chapter, going through the chapter 27 in Genesis, and looking at this family, Isaac's family. Now, Isaac is, an, is one of the uh, patriarchs of our faith. And Isaac's family, you have there four members in our story. Isaac, who is the father, and he's the husband. You have Rebekah, who's the wife and the mother. And then you have Jacob and Esau, who are sons and brothers. So I want to look at that. We'll read through it, a few, few thoughts on that. But then I want to share some of the thoughts that come to mind as I was looking at this whole uh, chapter that wraps up this study on family. That is family messiology. So first of all, we have Isaac in verses 1 through 4. Now, messiology for Isaac diminished the purity of his faith in God. This is Isaac. So look at verse 1. It came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see that he called Esau his older son, and said to him, my son, and he answered him, here I am. Then he said, behold now, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now therefore, please, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and make me savory food, such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. So as we look at old Isaac here, the his old age had diminished Isaac physically. He was blind, and that's what happens when you get old, physically diminished. But really, 
the heartbreaking part about this is that he had been dimmed spiritually. Physically, the aging process, as we know, puts a heavy burden on families. And but I'll tell you, aging is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> we know that the aging process brings a lot of things along with it, and particularly the advancements that we have in medical uh, procedures and things that we can do medically, and it, the whole, uh, you know, the old age care, the, old, the, the things that we do as far as caring and, and, and taking care, really brings a lot of burden on family monetarily as well as emotionally and physically. But here I want to talk about the spirituality of Isaac. His spiritual senses had become dim. Here he's knowing, knowing that what God had told him and his wife, Rebecca, that the younger, the older will serve the younger. God said that. That God's plan was that Jacob would be the one that would be the firstborn in a sense. He would be the one that God would bless. He would be the one that would carry on the promises he gave to Abraham. And so his personal preferences, this is Isaac, the father, the dad, his personal, personal preference, and also over the years, his physical appetites. He loved to eat. He loved good food. And he loved, he, he favored Esau over Jacob. And so it's interesting. Jesus' family came. His mother and brothers came to see him. And it was a crowded area. And so Jesus, they told Jesus, said, hey, your mother and brother are here to see you. And in Mark chapter 3, we read this. Jesus said, who is my mother and my, or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle and, at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. For Isaac, his own will had become more important, and that's what he acted on, than what he knew to be the will of God. So, uh, Steve Farrar, in his book, which I recommend to every man at least to read, Finishing Strong, he said this, it's not how you begin, it's how you finish. We also read from Warren Wearsby in his commentary, he said the same thing, a good beginning does not guarantee a good ending. Now, in, this, in his commentary, Wearsby quoted philosopher George Santayana, who called the family, I love this, he called the family one of nature's masterpieces. But Wearsby went on to say this. If that's true, that the family is a masterpiece, then many of these masterpieces have become nothing but pieces because they forget the master. I love that. Genesis 27, he says, describes such a family. And I would agree that the family that we see with Isaac is really a mess in many ways. And for Isaac, messiology diminished his faith, the purity of his faith in God. So God is our Father in heaven. When he began his family on earth through Adam and Eve, it began perfectly in the garden. It was not long, though, where they messed it up pretty severely. They sinned. Our heavenly Father groaned. They groaned. Creation groans and we groan because of sin. But we do not groan without hope because God the Father sent God the Son to make things right, to clear up and clean up the mess. And so this new, we become new creations in Christ. All things are passed away. All things become new through the gospel. 
He is coming again to make all things new. There's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth. But Jesus told us that before that happens, things are going to get messier and messier. And so what he's told us in, in, hope, in giving us hope in Luke chapter 20, 21, he said, first of all, it's going to get where men's hearts fail them for fear. Now, it's interesting today in our environment and what's going on, there's a lot of fear. Jesus said, as the days approach for his second coming, there's going to be a lot more fear. There's going to be a lot more things to be afraid of. The world's going to be in upheaval. There's going to be a lot of things going on that are going to be shaking the whole world. But then he said this, now when these things begin to happen, he says there, lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. How we can have such hope in the midst of all the messiness that we see in the world because of sin. So that's Isaac, Rebecca. Rebecca, messiology undermined the sanctity of her marriage to Isaac. So we read in verse 5. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau's son. And Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, her favorite son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me, that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now therefore, my son, this is Rebekah, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids' goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father that he may eat it and that he may bless you before his death. So Rebecca, now this is after years of marriage. She's working secretly behind the back of her husband to deceive him, to take advantage of him in his weaknesses and in his, his limitations. So we continue. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, verse 11, Look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him, and I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice. And go get them for me. And he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and on, on the smooth part of his neck. Then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hands of her son Jacob. What this indicates to me is that Rebekah was somewhat practiced in deceitful plotting. In this case, her own husband. In this case, egging on, as you were, encouraging her son Jacob to deceive Isaac. So she's coaching him. Now this is their son. Coaching him to do the same, to do this deceitful thing against her husband, against his father. So Jacob, this is ironic, but Jacob came upon his deceitfulness honestly. He came upon it from his mother. And so it may be that Rebekah is operating on the premise, the ends justify the means, because Rebekah knew what God had said about her favorite son, 
Jacob. So Sir Walter Scott said this, what a tangled web, web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Let me say that again. What a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive, unquote. Jeremiah 17.9, a well-known passage. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Our hearts, because of sin, can be easily deceived. And so in that scripture in Jeremiah chapter 17, God said, heart's deceitful above all things. Who can know it? But he said, I, the Lord, search the hearts. God, we need God to search our hearts. It's interesting, in the New Testament, four times we read, let no one deceive you. Four times we read, do not be deceived. It's a two-pronged thing. Let no one deceive you and do not be deceived because deception is all over the place. And in this case, it's messiology. Now, what about Jacob? Jacob, messiology encouraged his willingness to live deceitfully. It encouraged that. So we read verse 18. So he went to his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who, who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, now get this, it's an absolute lie. I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit, and eat my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, now is that you, is it, now how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he said, because the Lord your God brought it to me. Isaac said to Jacob, please come, come near that I may feel you, my son. Whether you are really my son. So he's, he's, he's thinking here. This is, something seems off here. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. Then he said, again, are you really my son Esau? He said, I am. He said, bring it near to me and I'll eat my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him and he smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him and said, surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, bless you. Of the fatness of the earth, may he bless you, and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Notice now, be master over your brethren, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. So here we have Jacob, blatant, flat-out lies. Three times directly, and many other times, he's, he's saying Veiled as being true, but really, they're lies using, used to manipulate his father, take advantage of his father. So verse 20, because the Lord your God brought it to me. No, hold on a second. That's not what happened. What happened is, oh, really? No, no, no. The truth is, you brought it to your mother. And so you can see the deceitfulness and all that's going on. And there's got to be tension in the tent. You know that this is going on because, okay, hopefully we'll get this thing over before Esau returns. And then, is that you, my son Esau? Oh, really? Jacob, 
you're just flat out lying to his dad. Now, certainly we all know all about the tensions in the tent. <laughs> we know in the family, in the home, and even now, as we're being forced together in some, in some places, there is a lot of difficult things, painful things that are going on. And I want to say next week, Pastor Paul is going to be bringing a message. We're going to continue in this family about uh, conflict resolution. He's been studying that for a long time. He's going to bring the word next week and talk about conflict resolution and how that's even today in the situations that we're in, we're seeing that, we know that that's happening now, that things are coming out that are painful and hurtful. That is family messiology. That's what we're seeing in real time. Now, Esau, finally, Esau. Messiology nurtured, note, he nurtured his willful disobedience in living unrepentedly. Willful disobedience in living unrepentedly. And so, verse 30, now it happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of, his, of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, let my father rise and eat his son's game, that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? So he said, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Notice, then Isaac trembled exceedingly <laughs> and said, Who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came, and I have blessed him. Notice, and indeed, he shall be blessed. So Isaac trembles as reality hits. He has been deceived. He has been lied to. And he has been taken advantage of. I believe also that there's some trembling going on because underneath there's this, this twinge of conscience that he had blessed Esau contrary to what God had told him that Jacob would be the one. Now, listen, a twinge of conscience is a good thing. When we are beginning to battle things that we know we've done wrong, that's messiology. The twinge of conscience is a good thing. I want you to notice something at the end of this chapter, verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he took as wives Judith, this is Esau, Judith, the daughter of Barry the Hittite, and Basemith, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, verse 35, and they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. The conscience is still alive. Now note at the, well that was the end of last chapter. The end of this chapter, verse 46. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth like these who are the daughters of the, of the land, what good will my life be to me? In other words, we can't let Isaac do the same thing. And so even Rebecca there and Isaac, it was a grief to them because they're seeing, as we'll look at in a moment, Esau's heart and understanding that. Now, in the next chapter, which we'll be going, when we begin our series in, in the life of, of uh, Jacob, in chapter 28, verse 1, notice, look there. It says, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. And charged him and said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. May God Almighty bless you. So it seems as though this twinge of conscience that God was still dealing with Isaac 
And he came around to where he got it right with God. That's such a good thing that's happening here. Now, Laban becomes God's instrument of discipline in the life of Jacob. And that's a good thing. It wasn't an easy road that Jacob had. We'll look at this when we look at his life in our next series. Jacob, this whole idea of it goes out from the family, and God begins to deal with Jacob about his deceitfulness, about how he operates. And it's through Laban, his, his own relative, that God deals. And that's a really good thing. Jacob, in chapter 32, wrestled with God, and he lost the wrestling match. That's a good thing, because God broke him physically, crippled him, that he might then bless him spiritually. And so God will deal with Jacob. God was dealing with Isaac, and that's a really good thing. Now, it's not good when we come to Esau, though. He would not be broken. So notice verse 34. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. Verse 35. But he said, Your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Then Isaac answered and said to Esau, indeed, I have made him your master, and all his brethren I have given to him as servants. With grain and wine I have sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth. So he's blessing him now. And of the dew of heaven from above. Now notice verse 40. But your sword, by your sword you shall live. It's not going to be an easy life for Esau. And you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. And so here Isaac is blessing him, but he's also giving the future, what's going to be taking place between him and his brother. Now, we might look at this story and think that Esau would be the one to be most pitied. Here he is broken. He's been deceived. He's crying. This isn't right. He's crying out for a blessing. And so if you were to look at that without the commentary of the Holy Spirit and without the, the word of God, our empathy would be misplaced for Esau because we learn that although Esau was broken outwardly before his father, he remained unbroken inwardly. He remained unbroken where it really matters, and that is in his heart before God, and that's what really matters. And so we read in Hebrews chapter 12, an important passage, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. So the context of this passage is falling short of the grace of God, bitterness springing up, not being dealt with by the grace of God, lest there be any fornicator, notice, or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So the word profane, we looked at this in an earlier study, it means to be against the temple or godless. Esau lived against God. Esau had no need for a relationship with God. 
He was an unholy, worldly man. He despised and sold his birthright. It mattered not at all to Esau. We must understand God's telling us this is his heart. This is the problem. This is the messiology that he would continue to live unrepentedly before God. Esau despised the things of God. So I want you to note, his sinful, godless heart aligned against God. So he stood before God unbroken. He alone is responsible for how he lived his life aligned against God. And so Esau remained unbowed, unbroken before God. And let me say this, that's a bad thing. That is a death, a death sentence to live that way. Second Corinthians, Paul put it this way. He said, I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that you sor- your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner. Unrepentance is ungodliness. That you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Notice, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. In other words, sorry he got caught, but not sorry for what it meant before God. And his heart was unbowed and unbroken. That is Esau, and that is a bad thing. The messiology of sin can cause a heart to become hardened against God, remain living against God, unrepentant about the things that are going on in the heart. And so we have Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau, the messiology of family. And as we read in the beginning of those, those verses, 41 through 46, the years of family messiology had inflicted wounds, left scars, and done a lot of damage. The tensions in the tent became normal. They became a part of what sin has done in the world and in the house. Favoritism, deceitfulness, lies. Failure and breakdown of trusting one another. The anger and hatred and revenge against one another. The blaming and excusing and justify of oneself. You know, Esau pulled out, it's not my fault card, as did Adam. It's just a part of messiology. He said, well, it's Jacob, He's and, he, and he blames his brother for his, the hardness of his own heart. Esau played the victim card, poor me, what about me, what about me? You see, none of those things necessarily are repentance. These things are the things that must be addressed as we talk about messiology. There's estrangement. There's bereavement. There's a lot of grief. Rebecca never saw Jacob again. It's tragic. It's sad. For Isaac and his family, what began well did not continue well. There was just a lot of brokenness. And friends, that's messiology. That's the world that we live in. So messiology, sin, diminishes purity. Sin undermines sanctity. Sin encourages secrecy, and sin nurtures obstinacy. Those are the things that I pulled out, applicational for us, that this is messiology. This is what happens because of sin. So as you look at the families in the Bible, they're a mess. (laughs) I don't know if that should encourage me or not, but Adam and Eve, right from the start, disobeyed God. 
Cain, their son, killed their other son, Abel. Noah's son, Ham, was brazen and cursed. Sarah abuses Hagar in jealousy and anger. Lot is dragged out of Sodom and seduced by his daughters. Jacob and Esau's sibling rivalry continues to this day. Esau, a loved brother and son, had wanted nothing to do with the God of Israel. Jacob's daughter Dinah is raped. Reuben has an incestuous affair with his mother, with the mother of his brothers. Jacob's sons considering, considered killing, but instead they sold their brother Joseph into slavery. We'll get that also. Judah, part of one of his 12 sons, Judah frequented prostitutes. Tamar became pregnant by her father-in-law. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, consumed by their irreverence. Gideon's murderous son, Abimelech. Samson, Manoah's son, born a promising Nazarite, lived in driven immorality. He died blind, brown, blind, and blind, bound, and grinding at the feet of the, the, his enemies who had defeated him. Eli had worthless sons, Phineas and Hophni. They were mastered by greed and immorality. Samuel's worthless sons, David's lustful failures ruined his family in so many ways. He has a sordid family history because of that. Solomon, David's son, heir to the throne, ruling over Israel, a womanizer whose heart was turned from the Lord. And we could go on and on about messiology of family. You see, the pandemic of the damaged families we see today is nothing new. It's been around the human family has been broken for a long, long time. And so I want to share a little few thoughts with you to encourage you. Now, that's, that's depressing. I get that. I understand that. But that's because we have to identify what is it. It's sin. Sin has brought into this world a mess. A synonym for messiology might be the word homardiology. Now, homartia is the word that's, that means to miss the mark in Greek. In theology, homardiology is the study of sin. Sin is resulted in inherited sinful nature and an inherent sinful world. Some other synonyms of messiology might be brokenness eology, suffering eology, damaged eology, dysfunctional eology, and I might wrap it up by this, Kevin eology. Sin has brought into this world death and trouble. Every perfect family, as we would look at it, is in some degree perfectly dysfunctional. Now, I consider myself a practicing theologian. That is, <laughs> I am trying to practice what I know should be true in my own life because I know the Lord. And I have a lot of notes. I got a lot of sermons filled with truth. But the, that theology, which comes along with a lot of other things, and this is not an exposition on, on, sin, on sin itself, and the accumulative companions with them, redemption, we have justification, sanctification, all those things. That's not what I want to share with you to close this, this time together. What I want to say to you is, we are just seeking to see God change our lives in the middle of all the messiology that goes around. You see, the object of all the subjects is one person, and that is Jesus Christ. 
our sole focus must come back again and again to the incredibly simple and complete, the profound and powerful truth that we find in Hebrews chapter 12, where he says, after going through the whole hall of faith, the writer to the Hebrews wraps up, can we have that Hebrews 12? Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, now you look at those witnesses and you realize they had a lot of messiology, lest let us lay aside every weight and notice, and the sin which so easily besets us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before. It's a race. It's a, we're, in, we're in sort of competition, if you will, against sin itself, against the world, against the devil, against all the things that would align themselves against us in this messed up world. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what? Endured the cross, despised its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Simple and complete. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Finisher, author and finisher of our faith. He's the one writing it. He's the one that wants to finish the book of our lives and close them in victory because we believe in him. Profound and powerful. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one, the only, the object of our faith and the one who is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we ask or think. In every mess is the Messiah Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In every mess is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace of God extended to us. In every mess, there's a messenger. And the messenger is the one who brings the good news of Jesus Christ. So you look at Isaac's family. They're all family whether they liked it or not. We've been born into sin. They're all faulty whether they wanted to admit that or not. We have a sinful nature in a sinful world. Listen, there were no heroes except for God himself. There were no winners except by the grace of God extended to this family and to us. There's plenty of blame to go around, but there's also plenty of grace to go around. And that's because of Jesus Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So God is our Father. He's our Father in heaven. We are part of his family. Now, we are uniquely Christian in this whole idea of our Father in heaven. God not only created us, he redeemed us, he purchased us. We are adopted into his family. And so we find in Christianity, our Father which art in heaven. It's a family. He sent his son. So let me, a few more thoughts as we close. If you've never been a parent, it's very easy to be critical of parents, maybe even your own. It's also easy to be critical of another's parenting. But when you've been a parent, that might be biologically, but it might be in a thousand other ways. It might be in foster care. It might be an adoption. It might be a social worker, a teacher, a children or youth pastor, a, a coach or a doctor or a nurse. When you've been entrusted with a, the privileged responsibility for the life of of another person, for, the, for another image bearer, the responsibility to know and nurture them, to support and protect them, to help and provide, to teach and train them, to help them grow up, to help them grow and then to let them go. If you've ever had that kind of relationship with someone, which I'm sure we all have, 
you understand the hopes and dreams of a parent. To see that person, to see that life be all it can be in living for the Lord. As a parent, maybe what you've experienced has been pretty good. You haven't had a lot of bad things, but listen, as a parent, you know the heart of a parent. There's nothing like the love of a parent to see that child grow, to see that child move on and begin to mature in their own relationships in loving other people at the heart. If it's not empathy because maybe you haven't experienced that, at least there's a sympathy because, listen, when things go bad, and they do, when things go wrong, and they will, there's a tremendous amount of hurt and pain because of the love of a parent. Because of the love for another person. And when they're going wrong, when things are going bad, we hurt for them. And there's a lot of hurt and a lot of pain there. Many times, I return to this poem written by Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, where she says, They felt good eyes upon them and shrank within undone. Good parents had good children, and they a wandering one. The good folks, folk never meant to act smug or condemned, but having prodigals just wasn't done with them. Remind them gently, Lord, how you have trouble with your children, too. The prodigal son that Jesus, Jesus gave that parable is the heart of God, given to us, the father for the son, the parent for the child, that person that is in your life that God's given you to nurture and take care of. That's the heart that we're talking about. I want to I leave you with these thoughts. When messiology is thrust upon you through no fault of your own, no choice of your own, you hardly know what hit you. It's messiology. It's sin. Sin is the sewer from which messiology flows. What do I do about it? How do I overcome it? How do I heal from sin? That's when the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes desirable. That's when the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes applicable. That's when the bad news is made sense now in the good news. That God the Father loves his children. He loves every human being he's ever created, birthed. And he wants to birth them a second time to know him. Now, the prosperity gospel should be called the propaganda gospel. Because it's fake news. It's not good news. It's filled with disinformation, deception, false hope, and yes, lies. My theological term for that is baloney as far as the prosperity gospel. It neither names the truth or claims the truth. God does not promise an easy life. He promises eternal life. Your best life may not be now. Your best days may not be in front of you. The better you may be the broken you, as we'll find with Jacob. Ask Jacob, ask Joseph, ask Job. The root is sin that bears the messiology of a fallen world. Sin has wrecked havoc. From the very moment it entered the world, it began to ruin it. Sin means to miss the mark. I say maybe we could say sin is mess the mark, messiology. And when we know the root, then we can actually deal 
and, and look at and deal and troubleshoot it. Sin is the problem. I know you know that, but I believe the Holy Spirit wants to say to us again, when we look at the problem, we look at the messes that are going on, even in our own families, know this, the root is sin. The problem is sin. And Jesus Christ came. Jesus the Messiah, he died on the cross to clear out history from sin, past, present, and future. Jesus the message, he lives to clean out the sinner's heart on an ongoing basis. We are the messenger. Jesus is coming again. He's going to make all things new. The end of the age is coming. When God will restore the garden, very soon, Jesus will return in glory and make all things new. The gospel is the good news in a messed up world. The gospel is the good news of God's goodness and grace, his love and care and long-suffering and patience. He is working in this world still through the gospel and through the power of the Holy Spirit in the messengers, and that is us as believers. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And what God has said is, I'm not done yet. I'm not done. I'm coming back to make all things new. So sin diminishes purity. Sin undermines sanctity. Sin encourages secrecy. Sin nurtures obstinacy. Simply and profoundly, listen, Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Keep them fixed on him, the object of our faith, who then is able to work things according to his pleasure and his goodwill out to make things, straighten things, and clean things. Hebrews 12 says, For consider him who endured such hostilities from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Listen, three things. Jesus can change you. Often the problem with messiologies, I'm looking for everyone else to change, when what God wants to do is change me. Listen, Jesus can change you. Secondly, Jesus can change your view. How, not, how you see other things, how you see other people. Joseph is a great example. Jacob is a great example. All through the Bible, those whose heart were, hearts were broken for God, God began to change not only them, but to change how they saw life, how they saw the things that were going on, how they endured through difficult trials and tribulations. And that is because they had their eyes on God. They had their eyes fixed on him, who is the author and finisher of their faith. And here's the final thing. Jesus can make all things new. The question is, do you believe those things? Are you willing? He is able. Am I willing? And that's why I'll come back to this whole thing. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus. In the midst of everything that's going on, let's fix our eyes. How do I do that? Listen, put on a worship song. Open up your Bible. Sit down and pray. Be quick to the cross. Be bold to the throne. Be glad in the Lord. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be in fellowship with believers. Be faithful to God. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you again. Simple things this morning, but profound. That you came into this messed up world to die on a cross that you might clean up and clear up the problem of sin. Bearing the weight of all of that on yourself on that cross that we just got done Good Friday, but then followed by the resurrection. You died on that cross. You were buried. You rose again the third day. You're seated at the right hand, waiting to come back to restore all things. So, Lord, we believe that you are able to transform us. 
We believe, Lord, that you can give to us a perspective in all the messiology that is able then for us to continue to press on while we look not at things that are seen, but the things which are unseen because they are eternal. And so our hope is in you, Lord, that you will indeed and can make all things new. So, Lord, we lift our hearts to you, our pains, our struggles, all the uncertainties, all the fears, and we lay them before you, the author and finisher of our faith, and we say, Lord, we're thankful that you are able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And so, Lord, I close just praying for the pain, the difficulties that are going on right now. I also pray, Lord, for anyone who doesn't know you. As we're wrapping up this message, Lord, as things begin to wrap up, we're praying for our nation, for the world. As we're going to begin to move on, I pray, Lord, you you would be able to do what you want to do in this time, not in spite of it, but because of it. Change our hearts, Lord. Draw those to yourself who don't know you, that they might know your love that surpasses knowledge. They might have the peace of God that surpasses knowledge. They'd be able to walk in eternal life because they put their faith in you. That's our prayer for this morning. We ask that. We pray these things. We thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen.